The minerals extraction industry has played a significant role in the shaping of the American West. From the early days of the gold and silver rushes in California, Alaska, Montana, and Colorado, to the days of the Copper Kings in Montana and Arizona, mining has helped build communities and fortunes. At the same time, mining has been instrumental in allowing labor unions to extend their influence as miners sought a livable wage and redress for injuries. As contemporary communities face the dilemma of cleaning up the long-term environmental damage from the mines, even as they struggle to keep the mines viable for industrial needs as well as local job creation and maintenance, community leaders attempt to preserve and present their history in ways that make sense and help to draw visitors into understanding local history, as you just witnessed. Many of these communities face competing demands to tell the story of ethnic groups who settled the towns, the women who first followed the miners to camp, the environmental degradation which often accompanies mining practices, the significant long-term ecological and human health consequences, and the contemporary efforts to support local economies, as well as give voice to those who have been left out of prior histories. Such communities often attempt to present local history in publicly and privately funded museums. Today's presentation is part of a larger project which examines the form, content, and meaning of public and collective memory housed in and constrained by mining museums in the American West. I am particularly interested in Western museums because the geology, geography, and climate of the Rocky Mountain region make some aspects of mining quite different from the East. That, that's an understatement. But I also find the relationship between the Eastern and Western regions of this country especially interesting. The historian K. Ross Toole argued that this relationship has always been about colonization. The West, particularly the Rocky Mountain West, was viewed by Eastern entrepreneurs as a source of raw materials that could be extracted, shipped East, and then refined into usable goods. The people of the West, whether they were indigenous or foreigners transported to the mines, were either hindrances or tools that, uh, to get the wealth extracted and moved East. Thus, Tool has explained, no one felt any responsibility to clean up or to share the wealth because the businessmen were only, if ever, temporary residents of the West and did not have to live with the consequences of their actions. There is merit in a generic approach which allows similarities and differences in museum presentation and interpretation to emerge and be compared. And I'm actually thrilled about the order of the two speakers because Professor Hansen's presentation exactly did what I am broadening. Read a particular museum to learn specific lessons from it, and then I want to expand that to multiple museums. So thank you, that, that, was, that was great. Thus, I'm interested not only in individual museums, but also in the patterns and messages explicitly and implicitly suggested by the ways in which museum displays have been developed and publicly presented. 
these material spaces of memory instruct the public about mining, mining life, and the West in both obvious and subtle ways. Because most people trust history museums to tell the truth or to report rather than interpret history, then what we see or don't see has profound power over what we learn to believe. History museums are therefore, as communication scholars point out, sites of both remembering and forgetting. The balance of this presentation will take you on a short tour of some Western mining museums. Then I'll identify the common elements in these museums, discuss museums as rhetorical texts, identify the resulting constraints, and finally offer a short conclusion about the lessons we might take away. Let me give you a brief visual tour of a few Western mining museums. I hasten to clarify that there are many mining museums I have not visited, but I believe the following selection provides insights into key features common to many and offer an opportunity to explore important questions. The Yankee Fork State Historic Park in Chalice is linked to the gold rush and focuses on the early days of gold panning by individual miners and the later placer, dredge, and sluice mining in the mountains near the Salmon River. Like many museums, this one is located in a very small town. Um, you see population just over 900, although Chalice is also part of a larger agricultural economy. The Lost Rivers Museum in Mackey, like most of these museums, includes both indoor and outdoor displays. Visitors are encouraged to visit and view all of them, and in many cases are encouraged to visit other parts of the town in which the museums are situated as part of the visit and their educational experiences. The Jerome State Historic Park is located at the mansion built by James Douglas in 1916, just above his little daisy mine. Some of you may be familiar with this park. Douglas designed the house as a hotel for mining officials and investors as well as for his own family. Douglas was most proud of the fact that the house was constructed of adobe bricks that were made on the site. If you're familiar with the Copper King Mansion built by William A. Clark here in Butte or the Daly Mansion in Hamilton, you can see quite a different design, one that seems to fit the area well. Interestingly, a copper ed etching of Clark's Butte Mansion hangs on the wall in the Jerome Historical Society Mine Museum, a different space than this one, but in Jerome, next to a large framed photograph of Clark. If you did not know this, Senator Clark, as the uh, volunteers describe him, bought the United Verde copy, copper mine in Jerome after he made his fortune in Butte. So Jerome and Butte have this really strong connection. The Granite County Museum and Cultural Center in Phillipsburg is located in an old hotel and focuses on local history carefully anchored in place. Roadside billboards invite travelers to see a 19th century mining town and the visitor learns that Phillipsburg was home to all kinds of people. The cultural center, part of the name, highlights an important part of the presentation. 
The Western Mining and Railroad Museum in Helper, Utah, is located in an old hotel like the museum in Phillipsburg. The Helper Museum features a particularly creative use of space as each topic fits into a hotel room. This focuses attention on the topic, but it can also constrain what is presented. In these two images, the room on the left focuses on union activity, and the room on the right focuses on the Wilburg mine disaster, where 27 coal miners lost their lives in 1984. Many of you know Wallace, Idaho, as part of the 1910 Big Burn forest fire tragedy, but others of you will know that Wallace is also part of a major silver mining district. The Wallace District Mining Museum is located in an old J.C. Penney building. Wallace, like Butte, you know, we recycle a lot of stuff in the West. Uh, Wallace, like Butte, is part of another significant hazardous waste site linked to arsenic and asbestos, even though silver is still being mined there. The museum was started by a miner who retired on disability, and at the time I interviewed him, was urgently trying to get information recorded about daily lives of the miners before the memories are lost. Many of the museums include memorials dedicated to miners who lost their lives. In Wallace, the memorial is just outside town and includes miniature tombstones for each of the 91 miners who died as a result of the 1972 Silver Mine Fire. You can, you can see some of these tombstones right in this area here at the feet of the miner. And um, he's actually pointed at the site of the mine. I think the description of the site says forever pointed. The Tonopah Historic Mining Park in Nevada is a 10 square mile primarily outdoor space which allows the visitor to take a self-guided tour of a silver mine site preserved in a state of arrested decay. One of the advantages of being located on an actual mining site is the opportunity to see the actual equipment. Like so many spaces in Butte, Tonopah offers the chance to walk around the site and imagine what things might have looked like. I appreciate the overt acknowledgement in the signage that is not always present in other similar sites, but we intuitively know this when we visit those sites. Adjacent to Tonopah, and therefore part of the physical context for the mining park, Goldfield provides a typical view of many boom and bust cycle mining towns. There's no museum here at all. There are hardly people. Around 1908, the town's population was about 20,000, making it the largest town in Nevada. But today its population hovers just under 250. Like several other mines, including the World Museum of Mining here in Butte, the New Mexico Mining Museum in Grants offers the visitor an opportunity to go underground and bills itself as the only simulated uranium mining museum in the world. It is simulated, of course, because no one wants to be casually exposed to uranium, you would think. And Many of the tribes in Arizona and New Mexico are still trying to prove that they got cancer from the work they did in the mines. And now we come to Butte. 
may I say that only Butte would claim the title of the World Museum of Mining. <laughs> right up there with Butte America, I suppose. On the left is the first part of the site that visitors are directed to, Hell Roaring Gulch. On the right is the Orphan Girl Gala Spring. Both are key aspects of this museum that highlight efforts to provide a community context for the miners, but also an understanding of the process of mining. Visitors can wander around Hell Roaring Gulch to examine glassed-in vignettes of a so-called typical pioneer or mining camp. They can take an underground tour to enter part of the mine, and they can examine displays in the hoist house or view other displays that focus on mining processes. In addition to external equipment displays, many museums, um, like the World Museum of Mining, feature smaller pieces of mining equipment that can be displayed and, displayed and ex explained inside. A very interesting element of many museums was some sort of 3D map, and that's what you see on the right. This helps show the complexity and locations of the underground systems of shafts, tunnels, stopes, and levels in the mines. In this case, the World Museum of Mining carefully points out that some of these maps were used in certain claim disputes during the Copper King Wars. Museums which featured underground spaces also included safety signs that either instructed miners about correct procedures or warned about the dangers of not following correct procedures. I would like to spend more time with these safety posters because I think they're really interesting. In this brief tour of a handful of mining museums, we saw that many of the museums had common display elements related to mining. After reviewing them briefly, I want to discuss how they highlight the rhetorical nature of museums. And, and I should say that by rhetorical, I mean persuasive nature of museums. That's sort of my disciplinary bias. Rhetoric is neither good nor bad, as Aristotle said. It is. It is how we see things and what we take from them. So I identified in this case that museums included the following common elements, internal and external displays and explanations of mining equipment, underground tours and or underground replicas. And I'll tell you, um, going, on the, going in the underground replicas, everything is so clean. And I realized that yesterday we were told mining is not a dirty business, but let me tell you, these replicas are very clean, so you need to bring your imagination with. Um, they also included original safety signs and safety information, mineral displays, including samples from around the world, and I didn't include photos of those, assay office information to explain how uh, the ore was handled, along with some information about mining science and exploration, and then these 3D underground mine maps or displays. Museums perform valuable roles. 
These public places tell us how to understand our past in authoritative and powerful statements regarding history and how we should think about that history. Museums are significant sites for reporting and creating public memory and are often intended or presumed to provide opportunities to collect and exhibit artifacts. History museums are trusted sites that the public believes provide accurate information about the past and thus are considered reliable sources for education about specific events and locations. In doing so, they also present visitors with specific cultural narratives that may even unconsciously encourage them to forget other things that happened at the site. Museums are one way of learning about an area, but may often be treated by visitors as the way. And thus, museums exist in a delicate tension between how to present the most important information and how to appropriately contextualize it. They are bound to leave things out, and yet visitors may think of the museum as presenting all that is important. As material spaces for memory, or places that provide physical artifacts which link information to memory, museums serve serve three roles. Uh, back up. First, they explain. Museums collect or seek out, locate, preserve, and legitimate artifacts. Collection creates legitimacy for some artifacts, but at the same time it excludes others. Thus, museums become sites for remembering as well as forgetting. In the case of mining museums, if something or someone isn't there, then most of us don't know or don't think to ask about it. Absence of materiality is the same thing as never having existed, ghosts notwithstanding. Second, museums exhibit artifacts by situating, locating, and contextualizing them. The physical location of the museum is often part of the overall meaning and influences the interpretation and installation of the artifacts and displays. The installation itself may create a new context for the artifact as it is removed from its original location. In the case of many of these mining museums, however, the installation is literally on the site of the mine, and much of the equipment is where it had been. It's very large. In other cases, the equipment and artifacts have been consolidated into a smaller space to make it more manageable for the visitor. On the other hand, the presentation of local history and artifacts associated with the daily life of the community adjacent to the mine is most certainly decontextualized. We cannot walk into a woman's kitchen, for instance, and watch her preparing her daily bread on a wood stove, nor can we walk into the mine shaft and see the miners setting the dynamite. Third, museums re-present, represent the artifacts or interpret them in ways that make them meaningful to visitors far removed from the time and events. Traditionally, artifacts have been separated from the viewing public by glass or rope barriers, but more contemporary museums often use interactive or lived experiences with artifacts. Still impatient here. Many of the displays are physically separated from the visitor but in other cases, visitors are invited into the tunnel or not prohibited from touching the machinery. 
So there's a very real mix of protection of artifacts and interaction with artifacts. However, despite every effort that any museum may make at presenting the um, artifacts realistically, even the efforts at make-believe, the real lived experience is lost. And so the artifacts and their display are designed to give only a sense of what things might or must have been like. Now, I mentioned earlier the memorials at Helper and Wallace. Most of you are probably familiar with the stunning memorial designed by Maya Lin and located in Washington, D.C. that pays tribute to the soldiers lost as a result of the Vietnam War. The memorial garden in the, at the World Museum of Mining was clearly influenced by Lin's beautiful design at the National Mall, although with a special butte twist. The garden is physically located between Hellroar and Gulch and the orphan girl head frame. So it's literally between them. Symbolically forcing visitors to consider one of the costs of mining before studying the equipment and going underground. The entrance to the garden is flanked by two miners' cages. And those of you who uh, have been touring around Butte will have seen the miners' cages and heard some description of how many men were packed into those. Each miner's name is linked to the mine where he died. There are over 2,500 names on these walls, but the guides at the museum will tell you the number is more honestly close to 10,000. If a miner didn't die on the mine property, they say, then his death was not attributed to the mine. Consider that for a moment. I said earlier that museums are a place for remembering and forgetting. I believe that the memorials here in Butte including the magnificent space at the Granite Mountain Speculator Fire and Mine Site, and this one here at the World Museum of Mining, along with the memorial in Wallace and the one in Helper and in other museums, are a way of pushing back against the forgetting. Most of these memorials are conceived by family and friends left behind and are often funded in small amounts by many different people and groups who refuse to forget. And like that miner in Wallace, are urgently doing this work before the memories are lost. I want to talk very briefly about constraints that all of you know museums face. While there are similarities in content across many of these museums, there are also some differences and the three roles of the museum to explain, to collect, to interpret are obvious. Each museum concentrates more or less on each of those roles. And this, I think, has to do with the constraints that they face. At this point, I believe the constraints are significant and they can only um, and include the following. Museums are constrained by the artifacts that they have. And I'm not going to expand on these in the interest of time. Uh, but the second constraint is that museums are constrained by financial resources, local donations, museum admission money, and grants. But contributions by mining companies affect the presentation 
of information and artifacts. If the Phelps Dodge Copper Company is willing to pay for an installation about mining equipment, it would be very difficult for the curator to include information about equipment safety. Third, many museums are run primarily by volunteers, well-meaning, well-versed in local history, but professional training in museum layout and storage techniques can be a luxury. As a consequence, material may be lost, misinterpreted, or simply ignored. Four, these very small local museums often feel constrained to support local economies. The extraction industry by definition is hard on the earth and is hard on the workers. The primary purpose for many of these places is to serve as a tourist attraction in order to generate local revenue because the economy suffers when the mine closes and people lose their jobs. Fifth, museums are the way we see history. If it's there, we learn. And if it's not there, we don't ask where it is or even if it is. Children go to museums for their classes. They make their parents go to those museums with them. And so adults go to museums. But on their own, adults are often reluctant to go to museums. Sixth, and finally, there are voices missing in these museums. Jerome, Arizona, for instance, ignores the daily life of the Mexican miners, although the Mexican business community and educational contributions are mentioned. Women are often missing except as young mothers. Certainly prostitution is romanticized and often trivialized, particularly in terms of acknowledging these women as businesswomen and significant contributors to local culture, religion, and education. Union life and the violence associated with fighting the unions is often ignored. Little attention is paid to how miners and support businesses came to the camps and communities. As I said, this is part of a larger project, but I like this closing thought. Um, this sign I found hidden in a garden at the Butte display says, we turn looking back to see the broken image of what we were in our journey to discover what we are. Thank you. Thank you.